regulatory takings law. Uh, you mm. ever taught this before? Yes. In in property law? I yes. Think it? it is a topic which maybe every, almost all property law professors, one of their favorite topics. I won't say their favorite topic. It is a theoretically very, very interesting area. Yes. I also took a seminar uh, in takings law, not just regulatory takings, but but uh, eminent domain as well, right? Yeah, uh, takings law writ large. Uh, at uh, when I was in law school, okay, with Tom Merrill, who Ooh, was, uh, he's excellent. Yeah, that must have been fun. Wonderful guy, wonderful professor, great fun. There is a provision of the Constitution which the students should look up. Right, I've I've told them that when things come up in the cases, they should always just look at the Constitution. It's you can find it online. You can look up the relevant provision because they don't always, you know, the cases don't always cite. The, the particular provisions of the Constitution in whole and the stuff around them. And of course, you're excerpting materials as well. So yeah. it might have been quoted in a thing that you didn't excerpt. Yeah, I, I try to be careful with that, but but it doesn't always come through. So, right. But there is a provision in the original Constitution and Bill of Rights before the Civil War, which prohibits the government from taking property. And it does it in a couple of ways which work together, I think, interestingly. So there is a provision in the Constitution, the Fifth Amendment, called the Due Process Clause, as we've talked about in class before, that, you know, no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. We've talked about that in the course in the context of life, right? Can't be deprived of life without due process of sure. law, which is that troubling, if you're, if you're a death penalty abolitionist, is kind of a problematic bit of text, yeah, right? But it also says you can't be deprived of property without due process of law. And it go, goes on to say that nor shall private property be taken for a public use without just compensation. Implying that it can be taken for public use if there is just compensation. Right. To see why this is kind of necessarily has to be the case, we can think of our free rider problems that we talked about in, in our holdout problems that we talked about in, in, uh, in the law and economics section. Right. So suppose the government is trying to build an airport or some large public work that involves a lot of land area. In order to do that, it's going to have to buy up a lot of private property, likely, especially if it's in an urban area or in the suburban area. Sure. And this has been true, you know, not just recently, but the development of suburbs has been true for a long time, that when the public wants to act together, it can oftentimes involve buying a, a lot of property, which yeah. means buying out a lot of private owners. Yep. Could be railroad track lines. It could be ro- just roads more generally. It could be any men- any number of it large could be public works. group projects. It could be economic redevelopment, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Because everyone knows what the public is doing, if you know an airport is going in, um, I think as I said in the section on, on holdouts, right, if you want to build an airport, you're going to need to buy every property. In the, it's, not, it's not enough. I think, I think this is what I said in that section. It's not enough to buy almost all of the houses out, which lie on the runway. Right? Correct. You can't have a runway which is almost entirely free of houses. Right. It has to be entirely free of houses. And this is true generally of public works, right? The dam can't be almost complete, right? It has, you have to have a whole dam. You have to have... A railroad which is totally connected. You can't have a railroad which has gaps in it, right? I mean, you can, but it's not going to be connected to anything. And so you're going to have to buy out everyone, which gives everyone who is at least necessary for the project, whose property is necessary, an ability to hold out and therefore kind of change their demand from what they would have accepted in a in a bustling market for property. You know, what would what would it have taken to induce you to sell your house? Well, you know, you're not a marginal seller, so maybe not fair market value, but maybe not much more than that. Whereas if you know that you're the sole property which is preventing the government from building, oh, I don't know, some big um, nuclear weapons facility or an airport or a military base or take your pick, you might say, huh, I can hold out for anything? 
Well, <laughs> um, I don't know, maybe 50% of the, of the value of the project or 10% or something. And suddenly you're holding out for a lot of money, right? And that's wasteful and it hurts everybody to no particular public advantage. Right. And so, and so it's not permitted. For governments, I think, I think all governments, um, I've looked at comparative takings before and I can't, I can't think of a single one which doesn't provide for the government to exercise this power of eminent domain, which is the ability to take property. And our constitution says that when it does that, it has to pay just compensation, which in almost all cases is fair market value. There are some exceptions, but in almost all cases, this is what you can think of as an appraised value of the property, of what, what the property would have gone for in a market, which of course is less than you might have held out for. Right. But in thick markets, which is to say markets with lots of uh, transacting uh, of, of, uh, at arm's length with lots of sellers and buyers, uh, it's fairly easy to get to an answer to the question, what is fair market To value? get to that number. Yeah. And it, and it does, in a way, systematically undercompensate because the people who are being bought out, by definition, were not in the market to sell their property True. already. Yep. And so they probably would have charged more than fair market value. But- the way this typically works is the government has some project it wants to engage in, whether it's state government, local government, or federal government, and it will notify all the uh, all of the property owners and give them a chance to enter a voluntary transaction, right? You know, we will take the property if we have to, but here's what we're going to offer you in advance. Right. And in order to induce them to avoid an expensive lawsuit and everybody doing things, you typically will offer a little bit more. So there'll be right. some premium above fair market value. And, and, e- and a premium can exist... And still be better off than litigating everyone's claims, right? Because right. litigation is expensive. So that fair market value payment in practice is what generally has been found to satisfy the just compensation requirement that is in the Fifth Amendment. It's kind of interesting because, of course, the original Bill of Rights did not apply to the states, as we've talked about on the show before, mm-hmm. and as we'll continue to talk about in the, in the course of the class. One of the early cases, though, before the Civil War that got the radical Republicans really wanting to change the Constitution in a way that would apply fundamental rights against the states was a takings case, Barron against Baltimore. Mm-hmm. The Supreme Court found, well, there may have been a taking which required just compensation here, but the Fifth Amendment doesn't bind the city of Baltimore. So take it up with the government of Maryland, yeah. but you go, go to state court, right. have, a, have a state lawsuit over this. Okay, so, but now after the 14th Amendment, this provision does apply against the states. Uh, the due process clause is there again in the 14th Amendment, no deprivation of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. That now applies against states right. uh, to all persons within their jurisdiction. Yep. And it has been found that another effect of the 14th Amendment was to make the Fifth Amendment applicable against the states. So now Barron against Baltimore would come out the other way precisely because the 14th Amendment says that that amendment, well, it doesn't say it in particular, it's complicated, right. but no, it doesn't No, state constitutions might also have provided on their own two feet the notion that uh, eminent domain has to be compensated of uh, course. In, in, before this result had been reached by other means. All, all this is just to say, though, that by the time we get to Pennsylvania coal against man, 1922, which is a, which is a suit against state government for a law which deprives assertedly deprives of property without just compensation, that all is in place, right? The, the, the federal warrant under the constitution to prohibit right. takings without just compensation is there. Now that said, the idea that you would force government compensation, not for an out and out 
taking, like you would imagine, like eminent domain. Like I'm going to come in and I'm going to take your property. I'm going to turn it into a post office or an airport right. or something else. No, and, and slow your roll because we've got to make sure everyone realizes what's happened in an eminent domain proceeding, right, um, to, to make that airport or that railroad line. The state has title. It is the title owner mm-hmm. of the real estate in that instance, right? The, 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 the parcel of land, uh, title to that land is in the hands of the government after the eminent, no, eminent domain proceeding is over. Right. right? Pennsylvania Coal Against Mayan is, is, as you've just started talking about, uh, different, right? This Pennsylvania statute doesn't take title to something and move it from one place to another place. It's not, I owned it yesterday, now that other entity owns it today or tomorrow. Instead, it's a regulation about mining coal to ensure that the top of the land doesn't cave in. And this was a real problem. So you can in, think in of it as a safety regulation, among other things. When I teach this case in property, I usually show a picture of, of the subsidence. I mean, you have houses which are actually falling into a gaping maw in the earth. Yeah. Like you, you had places, you had downtowns in Pennsylvania where you can see like streetlights or, you know, the whole like corner of a downtown right, is kind of falling in. Yeah. Right. Because the coal is being mined out from under them. So this is conceived of as a, is perceived as a social problem, necessitating, as many social problems do, some law, right? Of course, the lack of an airport is a social problem, and building an airport might be a social solution. Sure. And doing that effectively may require you to take property and pay just compensation. Right. Well, that's what's alleged here, is that this law, and as we've talked about, all laws tend to create winners and losers. Yep. And the losers under this regulation, the coal company, which has been told now that it cannot mine in a way that creates a subsidence, which means that as to this particular property at issue in this lawsuit, it can't mine at all and has to leave its coal in place. It's now being told this thing that you thought you owned, the ability to take coal out of the ground, you can't do. Without regard to whether or not it would cause the surface to fall in, mm-hmm. you now have to regard whether it would <laughs> cause the surface to fall in. That's right. And a complicating factor here is that they had agreed that they they had basically sold the overlying land rights to someone else. And so there's kind of this contract argument that they knew what they were getting into. There's a, like this whiff of responsibility on the part of the overlying property owners that is lurking in the background right. here. And you could also call it sort of a mixed signal from the sovereign, right? That the state, um, hey, hey, state, why did you let people sell separate rights in the coal separate and apart from the land above, if, if you weren't perfectly prepared to let me take everything out from <laughs> right. underneath, right? Or if you weren't prepared to do that, then you, you shouldn't have allowed there to be this, these kinds of sales agreements, these kind of contracts. And given that you did permit them, it's too late to change your mind about that. In this class, we built up a little bit of firepower from, from Coase. We can now see what the state has done. It has set up a situation in which the parties are going to be able to harm each other in ways that they might try to resist, right? So if you, if you set up a situation where someone, where someone can split up the, the subsurface and the surface in this way where you know there's going to be coal mining, then you've set up a Cozian conflict, right? Where if the overlying owner can stop the coal company from mining, it's kind of eliminating its use of its quote-unquote property. Whereas if the coal company's permitted to mine, it might deprive the landowner of a place to live. Right. Because it goes into the sinkhole. Exactly. And the state has, as you point out, it's the state which has set up this conflict by allowing this severing of rights. Sort of an earlier design question, are we going to permit people to sell rights to the stuff under their land? Because you can imagine setting up a system where people aren't allowed to do that. 
All right, but the the coal itself and in, in this issue, although you know, subsurface coal comes out a lot in these some of these takings cases. It's kind of weird, but an issue here is that this is the first time, this is the first case where the court has used the takings clause or takings ideas to suggest that a regulation that goes too far in reallocating quote unquote property rights triggers this requirement of compensation. And so before this, it had never been assumed that anything other than a physical seizure by the government, a physical taking of property was compensable. And sometimes not even and, then. And a change of title. Well, right. Prop, I mean, you've got the physical yeah. invasion of water cases. I mean, you I could guess. take government taking property temporarily, totally would do it. And there was that case, Pompelli, where they had basically flooded the thing. So right. there's, there are these other cases. So it's not always title, but title is a, you know, that is a signature. Well, certainly if you go through an eminent domain. domain proceeding, that's yeah. what you're getting, right? If you do the, the, what is tantamount to that, like flooding someone's land with a, you know, 10 feet of water. Right. Right. You might as well have taken title to it. I can't do anything on my land anymore. So now that's an analogy to be drawn with the coal guy. And, and now you're starting to push in that direction. Right. So maybe this was inevitable that we would get to stuff which was eminent domain and then eminent domain like and we would end up and we would end up in this place. Early on, though, there were cases where government would build roads on parts of property that people weren't using. Like I own, you know, people in in post-colonial America own like large stretches of land. Government would build a road across, you know, to get you know, from one part of the county to another. And if you weren't using it, there was no compensation paid or there was no requirement for it to be paid. Often as a matter of course, there was some compensation in some of these situations, right. but it was never thought that it was, well, I want to say never, never say never in law, but it wasn't really thought that it was legally required. This case though, is the first one where government regulation, which goes too far, can be seen as triggering this compensation requirement. And I put this obviously in this distributive justice section because the, the court's modern jurisprudence conceives of this area of law as, as realizing a distributive justice principle, a principle about, as we talked about in the last episode, I think early on you were talking about this dynamic process, Joe, right? The distributive justice as a, as a measure of the justice of a kind of transition in allocations, right? And the court sees it that way now, right? So that when uh, when, when government goes too far in taking away what you thought you had through regulation, it doesn't have to do it physically, but when it regulates what you can do and that suddenly changes what you had enough, right, then government has to pay. And it has a, we talked about rules and standards, it has a real standard for measuring whether or not this has happened or not. And when I say real standard, I mean something which is really case by case and 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 right. not super easy to predict in yeah, advance. Yeah, sort of an antithesis of a rule. Now, it, it's a little more elaborate than the standard that comes out of this case because the standard that comes out of this case is when a regulation goes, quote unquote, too far. Right. Right, which is the, that to me is like the, that's the ultimate standard, right? It just is a license to a judge to say, is this too much? A lot's going on in this case in, in Pennsylvania Coal and it's written by Justice Holmes. He's one of the most famous judges, justices, and jurists of, of, in American history. Not given to lengthy opinions. No. Yeah. Uh, one of the more Delphic of the justices. <laughs> yeah. Just sort of drop a few words here and beat a hasty retreat. <laughs> this is very much his MO. And this one is very rich and very, very quotable phrases, right? This is the one that says government hardly could go on if it had to compensate in every case. Right. I'm paraphrasing the last part, but that government hardly could go on phrase. And why is that? So we're, these cases about government being required to pay when its regulations have hit property owners too hard, 
we're kind of caught between two problems. On the one hand, if government has to pay property owners every time they lose a little bit, then as Holmes says, government hardly could go on, meaning that, like, how would they ever regulate? And to see why that's the case, think about transaction costs, right? And in in the context of takings, um, someone who's written about this has called them settlement costs. So imagine you're in the position of a regulator, because I always, I always urge students when they're thinking about legal problems to put themselves in the position of various actors, right? Mm-hmm. So imagine you're a regulator now and you see a social problem, a real social problem. Maybe what you see is a bunch of houses falling into the earth, right? And this, and, you know, and, and traffic lights and signs falling into the earth in a downtown. And you say, this is, we got to get a, we got to get a handle on this, right? And you ask yourself, what, what am I going to do here? And you write down a regulation. Suppose it doesn't go nearly as far as this. Maybe it forces coal companies when they are about to mine to do maybe just a little bit of a study and prediction and give people some notice of the fact that they're about to do something. Right. Maybe even a month notice, two months. So it doesn't prohibit it, right? It doesn't go nearly as far as this would. Well, does that make their property less valuable? Would you pay less for an underlying, an underground bit of coal that you knew had this kind of notice and study requirement than you would do for an unrestricted unrestricted title to some subsurface coal? I think the answer is by definition, yes, right? So that any property which is burdened with some restriction right. is likely to be less valuable than property which is not burdened with the same restriction unless, and I'll get to the unless in just a second, but in this case, I think you can see it would be somewhat less valuable. Would government have to pay that value? Okay, that seems like a, if you did, you'd have to figure out how much each coal company has lost for each piece of land it has. You can see each one of those is going to require us to do some surveying, some estimates. We'd have to ask people how much less they'd pay. We'd have to we'd have to decide some stuff. We'd have to figure out whether someone's making a real claim or not. Right. Imagine a regulation which said in a neighborhood you can only build one story, you can't build two stories. A bunch of people say, "Ah, oh, wait a minute. I would have I was going to build two stories. I can't sell my land for as much now." We'd have to get again, we'd have to get appraisals done. We'd have to all of that costs money. It's it's not the case that we don't want that we may not want to do that or that we do want to do that i don't right. i'm agnostic about that i'm just suggesting that if you if you feel like you have to pay for each one of those cases government hardly could go on as Holmes says because we've got to do we got to get out our spreadsheets we got to do some right. calculations and appraisals and now, all shout, that is transaction cost shout back to calder hicks efficiency right um with the alternative to pareto efficiency mm-hmm. um the the conventional um or, or a common phrase to referring to Calder Hicks, uh, the winners win more than the losers lose. So one way to think about this, this project uh, and why someone might be interested in pursuing this project of compensating uh, property owners for changes in uh, regulation is to say, well, it's a way of putting your money where your mouth is, right? Your claim is, or might be, um, hey, uh, <laughs> uh, there's more benefit with this change, then cost, uh, the winners win more than the losers lose. And so a loser might say, okay, well, then there should be enough to go around and leave some left over uh, for you to pay me, mm-hmm. right? Because you just made the claim that there is more advantage than disadvantage. Uh, so, so pay me. <laughs> now, the problem you were just pointing out, well, you know, the, the Calder-Hicks premise might have to hold transaction costs at bay uh, to make that claim. Uh, so it could be that that actually compensating people would eliminate all of those advantages. Right. That were a benefit above and beyond the cost. Right. So if there's some regulation that hit 
a million people for $2 of loss, but advantage 10 million people in a state by $5, okay? It's a $50 million gain and a $2 million loss. Clearly, it's Calder Hicks efficient. Right. But you could spend a lot of money figuring out which of those people are which. Yeah, exactly. Figuring out which million people, who gets what, you know, um, who gets the $2, who doesn't, that's, that could be very, very expensive. And yeah. so as you point out, if, if our, if our norm here is that we only want Calder Hicks regulation, suppose that's, we know that we want that. We want regulation, which is cost justified. Suppose that, that that's our pole star. If there were no settlement costs, then it would make sense to require government to pay losers in every single circumstance, because that would be put to the test the idea that these regulations were Calder Hicks efficient. Right. That's your argument. Or it makes sense for, it it might make sense for government to set up a transfer mechanism. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So so that there would be a way for the, for, for payment to flow uh, to those who are losing. And what Holmes suggests here is that that's true, right? That that's definitely true. We cannot require government to compensate in every case because it just would not be able to be government at that point. Right. But that sometimes it goes so far in regulating that we can't justify it the way that we usually justify winners and losers. Now, and here's do, where we're really referring to these kind of distributive justice theories. But go what, ahead. Yeah. What do you make of the go too far point? I think you're about to say. I think you're about to provide an answer to this. Yeah. So I'm just as a question, when it says, when it, when, you know, when it goes too far, it goes too far in what sense? Well, here's what I want to say. Like if I'm driving to yeah. your house and I go past your house on the road, I've gone too far. Right. And I went further than your house yeah. on the road. Yeah. So it's this, there's a metaphor being invoked here in some sense. And I'm just curious to get you well, to l- say let me what just, it is. Let me just say at the out, at the outset that, that the fact that it is so vague is a valid critique of the whole decision. Right. I mean, we can say he uses other words, right. but it never really gets to analytically more precise than goes too far. Right. So you can't, you know, I don't want to overstate it. But the upshot is like, look, civilization costs money. Right. <laughs> right. Like living in civilized society is a matter of having rules where sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. But we're, we're kind of all in it together. Right. I'm going to lose sometimes. You're going to lose others. If we had to kind of settle up all the time, we could never make this work. This is like splitting check. The check at dinner with your friends when you go out. You figure we're going to go out a lot over our lives together. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'll have paid more into the check than I ate. Sometimes you'll have done that. But it, it's a wash. Yeah. Right. Over time. I use exactly this thought experiment with my property students where I'll, I'll ask, like, imagine you're in a group which is constantly going out. In our case, you have to imagine you're in a group which is like going out every week without fail, something like that. Right. I mean, most weeks. And you're going out to a restaurant. And there are enough people in the group where it's, you know, they're not going to split the checks for you automatically. So you have to decide whether you're going to get out your calculators, figure out how much everybody owes, put in precisely the money. You have to have change and all this other stuff. Then you can't just put your cards down. That's not going to work. There are too many people, what have you, right? So, right. Uh, you know, in other words, there are costs with kind of assessing things exactly, right? right? And so you have to decide whether you're just going to do it this way. I'll take it this time. You take it next time. That's one possibility. Like, you know, I get the whole bill this time, you get the whole bill next time. Or if we'll divide it evenly, even though maybe I got the steak this time and you got the salad or, you know, we can... Because like, next time... But yeah. if you think that it's all equally likely to wash out... Right. And that's... Holmes uses the phrase reciprocity of advantage right. to describe that, right? That, that sometimes 
regulations that create losses like this can be explained by their kind of reciprocal creation of benefits and costs. Like, right. yeah, I, I'm and a if loser. An, and if there's an average, but, if there's yeah. an average reciprocity of advantage, so it's sort of it really does wash out over the whole group over time. Over time, right? Over time. And even if I'm a little bit of a loser here, maybe there's a, a nearby regulation. That's what he doesn't really go into here, because right. it, it can't be that you have to you have to be you have to get a a zero net cost for right. every particular law, right? It has to be like nearby laws, but it's probably not enough that I'm a, I'm a big loser under this law, but I'm a big winner under some completely unre- unrelated law in a pre- completely unrelated area. So it, it, there's a lot of sloppiness here. But to go back to the dinner check analogy, right? I think what Holmes would say, right, is that just because I get stuck with a bill that's a little bit higher this time than where we go out next week, and it's my week to pay, Okay, so I'm a little bit of a loser there. But if we go out long enough, that's it's going to work the other way sometime, right? So maybe we went to, oh, I don't know, what, what's, what's a decent restaurant around here that's not really expensive? I don't know, like uh, maybe we went to Willie's. We got burritos, okay. okay? And I bought all the burritos this time. And maybe another time we go out to a place which is a little bit more expensive. What's more expensive? Like one of these, um, uh, I'm trying to think of a good place in Athens that's a little bit more expensive than than Willie's, but still kind of like that. Like the Shake Shack, or is, that's a West Coast thing. What's that place? You know, the place with the burgers? I don't know. Maybe we go to Clocked. Go to where? Clocked. Downtown. What? Are you really, you really don't know? I can't see your, I can't. Clocked. C L O C K E D. Clocked. Yeah. I have never been there. Oh my gosh. It's a burger place downtown. Can we go to Ted's? We can go to Ted's. Okay. Okay, we're going to go to Ted's. Okay, we're going to go to Ted's. But Ted's most best. It's, it's right across the street from Clocked. Seriously? Yes. Oh. Clocked is good. It's got great burgers and things. I'm not and saying it's not good. I'm I mean, just I get not the veggie, familiar I get with the it. veggie burger. They got the Ring of Fire burger there. Nice. It's good. I thought the tattoo place was across from Ted's. Yeah, it is. It is. They're, they're not the same store. <laughs> <laughs> the, the tattoo place is called Pain and Wonder. Yeah, and the 40, well, I don't know. I haven't been there. But the 40 watt is nearby too. But okay. they're all different places, Joe. These are all different businesses. Can we just go to Ted's? Yeah. <laughs> so we, we go, I, it's a little bit more than Willie's. Yeah. And I get the check there. And, you know, but if we're in this long enough, eventually, like. It all evens out. It all because we'll go to a more expensive place and then right. a less expensive place. And, it, you know, this is just the way things work. But what if, what if one week we go, we all go together to New York and we go to Danielle? Okay. Have you been to Danielle? No. Uh, so it's a very expensive restaurant okay. in, in New York. It's, it's excellent, but it's very, very expensive. So instead of spending, I don't know, $5 a plate, and maybe I was upset when I had to pay $10 a plate when we went to Ted's or something like that. Well, now we're paying, I don't know, like $300 a plate or something like that with everything that we're going to get. And now someone turns to me and says, oh, oh, it's, two, your, it's, turn. Your, it's your turn. Right. And you're thinking, whoa, this is not part of the deal. Right. Right. This is an unusual cost, yeah. which in all fairness and justice, we should spread. All, right. We should all share in more, much more directly. Right. Than this, it'll wash out over time, which in the normal course of the other stuff turns out to be close enough to true mm-hmm. that it's okay. Whereas when you apply it here, it's like, this is so out of proportion. Right. to typical circumstances. I'm being asked to bear a very, very big cost. Right. And it's not at all clear that I'm ever going to be made whole in the run of time. Right. I mean, this is flipped from a kind of regulatory regime that we have, in our sense, it was a dinner payment regime, 
which was just a rough and ready way to accomplish a task right to something where someone has been singled out to provide the rest of us an advantage if you want to think kantian right we're using the the payer as a means to get something that we wouldn't have otherwise whereas in our in our ordinary regime where things were roughly equal you could say yeah someone's been treated as a means because they're the payer but the fact is that in another situation they're going to be paying a little bit less rather than more and over time no one is really being used as a means we're all means in it together right we're all ends in this dinner club and and Law and its changes over time, which is analogous to going to different restaurants that are comparable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, law is constantly readjusting the benefits and the burdens of things. Exactly. At the edge, right? A little bit here, a little bit there. And over time, you win some, you lose some. It's kind of a wash. Close enough. Yeah. That it doesn't, fe- any one of those changes doesn't feel particularly unjust or galling because it's, you know, yeah, okay, today wasn't my day, but tomorrow I might be, that might be my day and that's fine. One, one of the issues raised in this case, though, is why government can't stick someone with a huge bill when they're the ones who are kind of generating the cost. And this is where Brandeis's dissent really comes in. Like, what if they were mining in a way that released a poison gas? Do we really have to pay them not to kill us all? I mean, that seems <laughs> perverse in a way, right? <laughs> right. And over time, I think the court's answer is that takings is about distributive justice, right? It is about, given the way things are currently distributed, when you move from that distribution to something else, when it's really, really out of whack and we really are expropriating somebody in order to get an advantage for the rest of us, that's when we're going to look case by case and try to analyze whether it's gone too far. And the current state of the art in takings law is there are a couple of categories where you compensate automatically and you don't think about it. That's when government has permanently invaded property or where government has taken all economically viable use away from a property. That latter one almost never happens. In fact, I think really never happens. So almost always we're in this third zone, which is where we analyze the government regulation in a way that which is not much more rule-like than Holmes is too far. It's the Penn Central test yeah. where, the gov- where, where the court has said, look at these three factors, put them in a hopper and just kind of figure out whether it's gone too far. And those three factors are the character of the governmental action. So are they doing something which looks more like eminent domain or are they doing something which looks more like just regular regulation? So just how does it feel? Second, what is the extent of the diminution? How much has... In value. How much has the property owner lost relative to what they have. Interesting case, this term about what that means exactly. And even even Penn, uh, Pennsylvania Call Against Man raises this problem of the denominator. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the third factor is the uh, degree to which the government regulation interferes with reasonable investment-backed expectations. Right. So you kind of put all that in a hopper about like, how much is it hurt, you know, how much are you actually losing? How much is the government acting like a kind of a property owner? How much are they taking in terms of control? And then how much is it really disrupting what you expected? Did you buy low, sell high in, a, in, a, in an attempt or buy low in an attempt to sell high because you, you anticipated it would be difficult to develop this land? And is this a domain where, where the frequency with which the benefits and burdens get moved around and shifted around is, is uh, it's very frequent in occurrence mm-hmm. such that you... Of course, if you bought into that marketplace, you would think, well, it's very likely I'm going to experience a regulatory change because the regulation is changing all the time. Yeah. Uh, Or is this the area, the sort of area where it's very unusual for benefits and burdens to be readjusted? So 
I think that's all I want to say about that. I just want to say a couple more words about the Pinnell case, the mm. second case that I gave, where mm-hmm. Justice Scalia has this very interesting dissent uh, going into the kind of distinction between regulations and taxes and, and kind of really what I think is at the nub of the, of the takings issue. Mm. So this is a case involving rent control in San Jose. Anyone who's ever lived in the Bay Area <laughs> understands what rents are like out there. It's not like Athens, let me just say that. Right. Um, and, and so rents are kind of spiraling out of control from the perspective of the city. And it's concerned about holding on to service workers. You know, when I, when I lived in the Bay Area, there was a whole article in the local newspaper about basically doctors moving out of town because they couldn't afford to live there. Mm-hmm. So it was, it's a real problem in, the, in Silicon Valley, um, creating property which is affordable enough for people to live there who you want to do ordinary things in an ordinary economy. Right. So they have this rent control ordinance part of which turns on the ability of the lessee to pay, right? So if you're not able to, uh, you know, if you're below a certain income amount, then maybe the, the, we bar the landlord from increasing the rent in a particular way. And beyond the sort of 8% built in. Right. Right. So there's an 8% hike built in. Right. So it's, will can they go further than that? Yeah. And when I was in the Bay area for law school, it was, our rent went up like a hundred percent the first year and like 70% the second year. And so it was, uh, let's just say it was out of control. I think off the chain, that's the way they might say it. That's the way the young people would say it. Isn't it, Joe? Off the chain? Woof, woof. Or is it off the cuff? It's not off the cuff. That's 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 what I'm doing right now. Yeah, that's different. Yeah. Off the hook. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The question is, how do we solve this social problem? And the city of San Jose decided to try to solve this social problem by prohibiting landlords from charging a lot. Right. I mean, that's the basic mechanism here is to prohibit landlords from jacking up rents to a point where people would have to move out. Yeah. Be at a certain rate. Right. Beyond a certain rate. Right. You can increase it, but it's the, there's trying to bring some sort of orderly pace to the rate of increase. And if you tend to see the market as establishing kind of a natural price, then you could see this as, and, and I think a way to see this is as a method of forcing landlords to subsidize tenants. Okay. Right. So landlords have something of value. If you had taken away this regulation, they could have charged more. Government says you have to charge less. There's another way we could solve this problem though. Right, Joe? We could tax everybody in San Jose. Just put down a tax. We could even just tax landlords. People who own property. Yeah, tax the ownership of the property. We could tax people. And then we could take the proceeds from this tax and give subsidies to tenants. Sure. One could make a takings challenge to the institution of any rent control ordinance of any description. Right. And it seems like that isn't what this case is about. Not a full frontal attack on the existence of a rent control ordinance. No. Rather, it is an attack on a particular feature of this specific ordinance, which is about whether or not the landlord can be prohibited from going above a built-in default rate of increase based on characteristics of the tenant. Right. As opposed to of the landlord. 
and, and yeah, or some other Characteristic, factor in the market. Characteristics of the tenant, which are kind of irrespective of the landlord, right? Correct. We can't at all say the landlord is at all responsible for Or characteristics for it. of the market or something. Yeah, or even that, yeah. Or What's even the that, rate of inflation? What's the blah, blah, blah. And right. not even landlords as a class are responsible for the particular economic Correct. situation of the tenant. So there's a real disconnect there. But I think that, um, so, so I selected this case just for this one point though, right? That, that, um, Scalia observes that this taxation possibility is another possibility for solving this problem and that taxes and regulation are generally substitutes for one another. What you can accomplish through regulation, you can usually accomplish through taxation and what you can accomplish through taxation, you can usually accomplish through regulation. Like if you, if you tax something, you get less of it, right? If you subsidize something, you tend to get more of it. If you regulate something, then its value goes down, people invest in other parts of the economy. So this idea about using regulation or taxes right. to create incentives to create a world that you want to live in or that you prefer, like that's, that's there. Yeah. And so the issue is here for Scalia, should we force the city to do this through taxation rather than regulation? And he concedes that if we taxed these very same landlords and redistributed, it would be okay. Like there's not a provision in the Constitution which would say you can't tax these landlords and redistribute. Right. One thing the student should think about, by the way, is is a tax a taking? <laughs> it's like, you know, my income taxes. The government is taking my property, my money, and should it have to compensate me for that? Of course, if it did, it couldn't tax. So the answer is no. <laughs> curious to think about. <laughs> curious to think about why the answer is no. Right. Um, and that and that might have. That might help explain some of the presence of the income tax amendment to the Constitution, permitting right. there to be an individual income tax. So Scalia has a really interesting theory here, I think, about why the why making this a compensable taking and therefore taking away the incentive for the city to do this through regulation rather than through taxation has some good to it, right? And the idea is this. Taxes are more visible as laws than regulation. And regulation of these landlords to provide subsidies for tenants, because the aspect of this rent control law that you refer to, Joe, right, is about how you have to, you, you can't go up to the same rate if the tenant can't pay, and that's something you don't control, right? That is, in a way, that is an off-books tax and transfer, because what you've done is you've forced the landlord to subsidize the rent of the tenant, right? That's equivalent to just taxing that landlord and giving that money to the tenant and then letting the landlord charge what he or she wanted, right? This exactly the same thing. Scalia's theory really is a preference for tax and transfer over regulation. And unlike this kind of go too far, just pure distributive justice principle, this is a theory about like democratic accountability as justifying takings. Uh, did you have any thoughts about that? The only additional thought I would offer, uh, and and it's it's not a, any, it's not a quibble or quarrel with that at all. Um, the only other additional thought I would offer is that um, the, the text of the Constitution might be a source of some of that preference, might be, might be give, giving a little bit of gas in the engine to that preference in the following respect. Um, uh, it says, uh, take private property for public use w- without just compensation. Can't do that, right? You mm-hmm. have to have just compensation. Um, that other phrase, though, public use, mm-hmm. right, uh, has uh, long been understood to mean that um, it, you can't have any taking of private property for private use. Uh, it's not proper for government to um, 
take title to my land and then turn around and just hand it to some other private person. Um, and the justices have interpreted that as being that kind of private, pure private transfer for purely private purposes as violative of the takings clause. I actually think that's wrong. I think it's a viola- violation of the due process clause. Okay. It may be that um, that the principle is misguided. It may be that it's a good principle but doesn't relate to that bit of constitutional text. Sure. It could be that it is both a good principle and does relate to that <laughs> part of text, that would be actual current Supreme Court doctrine, that last option I described. Um, I bring it up now simply because this case could look like that problem, mm-hmm. where it looks like the ordinance is saying, this landlord can't do something because it needs to be given to that tenant, mm-hmm. that it sets up a private-to-private private transfer issue, right. right? Right. It's not just subsidies to tenants in general, it's to this tenant. Right. Could be another problem with that with the case, yeah. From from his point of view, I'd be interested in talking about that with with the class about like you know what kinds does the does the purpose of the governmental regulation does that affect your does that affect your judgment about the justice of the regulation right thought of in the sense that we've been talking about distributive justice in the in the substantive readings does it matter whether the government use is going to be efficient or fair, or what have you, or are we only looking at how much the person is being asked to give up? In our analogy about restaurants earlier, right, does it matter that we're going to a restaurant where almost everybody hates the food there, but one person really loves it, and they, for some reason, had the power to get us there that day, right? right. Like, should that affect right. our view about who should pay? Yeah, like the, the, the aphorism you were using before about, you know, should, should one person be forced to bear the cost that, in fairness, everyone should bear, yeah. right? Sounds like what's important is how many people are bearing the cost. Yeah. Um, not how focused the recipient of the benefit is. Right. That sounds like a separate question, right? So the, in terms of taxation, right, if, if, we're, if taxes are levied, it goes into a general fund and the fund is used to pay for certain government services, right, mm-hmm. or government provision of certain things. Okay. Um, you, you might think differently <laughs> if it's, um, okay, there's this new tax being levied um, and basically the way the tax works is everyone just send Joe a check. Like, who's this dude, Joe? And why is he getting all our checks? <laughs> right. That seems weird. Yeah. Like, what's going on here? It doesn't sound like the way things work, right? Um, so it, it's, a, it's a kind of a, a quirk. You'd need to think, okay, well, is that okay? Is that, does it, why is that happening, right? Um, this constitutional text seems to address itself to something like that. Maybe. Maybe. But then if you, if you take one of the egalitarian theories that we looked at, and you think that as a class, landlords are wealthier than tenants. And you, you, that may be empirically, you know, you'd have to look empirically. Sure. Or, you know, in the Bay Area at this time, or landlords as a class. Right. Like, you know, they own this property. They own this very scarce resource. Yep. Should we, um, uh, should we basically reduce the value of that resource in order to make a more equal society? Uh, and, um, you know, being able to live here. It's, it, you might use those theories to suggest that transferring value from landlords as a class to tenants as a class actually is distributively fair. Mm -hmm. And if you think takings is a distributive doctrine, then you may think, okay, well, this one's all right. Right. Yeah. But you might still say, okay, even though it's all right, we should surface that choice Mm -hmm. by making it a choice about taxation and transfer. Right. Rather than try to kind of hide it. Right. And that's kind of a, 
that's Scalia's point. I'm not so sure about it, but I'm interested to hear what the students have to say. Anything else from you, Joe? No. Done.